Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 36 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I got to chat with my friend Dr. Marissa Stevens, an Egyptologist and the Assistant Director of the Poor Davoud Center of the Study of the Iranian World at UCLA. Marissa and I met at a small gathering last summer when I was in L.A. visiting friends. Not only is she personable and hilarious, she's wickedly smart, having written her dissertation on 21st Dynasty funeral papyri to determine funerary iconography's role in defining an individual's social identity, specifically with respect to titles, social position, family lineage, and gender of the Theban elite. Combining art historical and linguistic approaches, her research focuses on how objects can solidify, maintain, and perpetuate social identity, especially in times of crisis when more traditional means of self-identification are absent. In this episode, we discussed how to find the right PhD advisor, how to handle having a famous academic advisor, the challenges of making Egyptian and other Near Eastern art and culture more accessible and less alien. I hope you all enjoy this super fun episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you for joining me. How did you get into the ancient world more broadly? Just generally, tell us a little bit about how you got into the ancient world. So I always tell people... I guess I just never grew up because as a child, if you had asked me when I was seven years old, I would have told you I wanted to be an Egyptologist. And I feel like many kids go through that phase where it's, it's dinosaurs or astronaut. It's something about the ancient world and it's normally Egypt. Egypt is, you know, kind of the sexy, interesting thing. And I devoured all of that material I can find in the elementary school library, you know, about mummies and about pyramids and everything. And it never left me. Throughout middle school, high school, I still always wanted that. And I had a lot of supportive teachers and supportive parents that they knew this was a little uh, different than most kids when they come up with their career plan ideas, but they always just said, all right, figure out how to do it, right? If this is what you want, 
go into it with as, as much knowledge and background as possible, figure out what you need, what schools you need to go to, what skills you need to have. And they always just encouraged that and said, you know, if, you, if this is what you want, figure out how you're going to get there. And so that's what I've done every step of the way. And I've never really wavered on that. So it's kind of oh. interesting how I didn't uh, veer off in any one direction or the other. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, hey, look, I had an amazing sixth grade teacher. So obviously I wanted to be into the big sexy topic, which was Egypt as well. And Mm -hmm. definitely I said, I came home and did the same thing. I said, I'm going to be an Egyptologist and then famously didn't pursue that. So now I'm curious though, when you said, okay, fine, you're going to let me do it, but now I have to figure out how to do it on my own. Was it an easy process figuring out what you had to do because I have these very distinct memories of not really knowing where anything Egyptology was no resources so it kind of was like googling but did you have a similar experience yeah I did and and, you know this was it was a lot of googling but this was in the early days of googling and things you know so there wasn't much information and there there still aren't good solid repositories of information but it was even more scattered then so you started to get universities popping up like the University of Chicago and that's where I eventually did go for my master's you know and Johns Hopkins is another big one Brown right so you start getting these names but then you think all right well how do I get there and when do I go there right are we talking about PhD only should I be looking at that for undergrad you know and a lot of people advise for undergraduate studies a more broad liberal liberal arts education is often a good foundation and so that's what I did decide to do I went to Washington and Jefferson College first for for my undergraduate years and I did a double major in history and sociology and so I thought that that was a good strong foundation that could get me where I wanted to go but also give me a plan b and c and d right you know all of that in case it doesn't work out in some ways it was a little bit more of a roundabout method because some some students will go directly into either a classics program or a near eastern studies program as an undergraduate and there's nothing wrong with that i don't think you know thinking of, in terms of a solid foundation i just felt more comfortable giving myself a little bit of a broader foundation to start with i think that's a really good idea because obviously jump a couple years later whenever i was going through high school and really trying to figure out you know oh these elite universities is where it's at but like mm-hmm. do you have to go there now do i do i have to go to brown and ask them if i can do a undergrad like a BA in Egyptology like what do I do let's be honest I probably would have actually done something really stupid and gone to like Hopkins and tried to do an actual BA in Egyptology if someone would have let me do that but I was stopped actually by both my parents and other people who probably knew a lot better than I did that this is not how you really want to do it I mean you could but that's not the best most healthy thing In terms of then not having to face the sort of barrage of things that I suppose classics majors do, which is, what are you going to do with that? That's your BA? You're never going to make money. Obviously, history and sociology are not like big six-figure pay money makers, but because you weren't so pigeonholed into like a classics department, did you encounter any kind of resistance along the way from advisors, parents, anyone who was just like, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to make money? Are you going to be poor? Or was it broad enough that they were like, no, no, she can get a job and whatever. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I just have to say again, you know, I was very, very lucky to have 
super supportive parents that never once questioned, you know, what are you going to do with this? Or, you know, how is this going to play out? And they've never, they never pressured me into, don't you want to find a different career? Don't you think being a doctor, a medical doctor, like they never did any of that. They always had a lot of confidence in me that I would be able to figure it out. I really appreciate that, especially in hindsight, hearing other stories from people where that was not the case, right? And, th and that can be such a conflict. It's a personal conflict. It's a professional conflict. During your college years, you're, you're figuring out who you are as a person. And then to get that questioning from your parents, right? You know, the people that, that up until that point have really defined who you are, right? That can be, that can be a, a huge issue. And so I'm really, really grateful that they've always been supportive. I think setting that broader liberal arts education maybe extended, I don't want to say my time to degree with my master's and my PhD, because I think I did move relatively quickly through those phases, but I did take an additional pit stop at the University of Chicago to then get that master's, right? Which I felt was really important because I didn't have a lot of the specialized knowledge that I would need to start a PhD program. So I thought then doing a one-year master's program would be better just to get me up to speed. People that already had uh, their middle Egyptian courses and language, you know, and their fundamental Egyptian religion class and the Egyptian civilization class. So I did all of that at Chicago then before moving to UCLA for the PhD. So that kind of was my middle ground stop. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 I've heard some stories that are very similar that they didn't come from mm -hmm. any kind of, you know, specialized background. And then they were like, okay, well, I need, you know, a little more practice. So then they would stop and do something, catch up and then mm -hmm. go on. Um, but this kind of bleeds into the question of for a lot of people, if they're lucky enough, they might get scholarships to get mm -hmm. through undergrad and then, you know, PhDs, hopefully I would hope you would not go somewhere where they refuse to fund you, but right. master's programs. They cost yes. a lot of money and especially mm -hmm. with specialized programs like this that are so expensive and only, of course, at like the most prestigious elite universities. It's kind of like some people might just say, well, I can't be paying for two years for right. a master's. Do you feel like that adds pressure almost to try to specialize as a BA just so you have so you can go mm -hmm. and like skip that step? But also, is that then hindering people because you're like forcing them to specialize so early? I think that's a double-edged sword, just like you said. Finances are always, you know, a huge concern and they should be, you know, people that think, oh, I'll just take out all the loans I need to do what I want. There's something about that idealism. I, I applaud that. But at the same time, we really need to think practically and you are not going to be making those six, six figures, like you said earlier, in this type of career path. So you really got to balance that out. And a lot of master's programs that are that one year master's programs, either in like the humanities or social sciences divisions, there's been some recent articles published where they'll say like, are these really just cash cow programs for these large universities? Are they really considering what they're flooding the market with? all of these people with more specialized degrees, master's degrees, and really no means of placing them either into PhD programs or the job market for whatever it is they want to do. And so I think like that's a huge pitfall. I think if you're going to do that one-year master's program somewhere, you really need to have a good sense of what you want to get out, it, out of it personally because it's not like that is a career track kind of program in the same way that a law school or a medical school is where there's 
a defined place for you once you graduate. Unless you know specifically what you can get out of that school and out of that program and how it will benefit you, I would avoid enrolling in those programs just to say I'm getting the master's without any clear plan of what you will apply that master's to in later years. And that being said, then you think, okay, well, maybe then I do specialize as an undergrad. It will save me some money. It will save me some time. And I think that's fine to do if you are exceptionally clear on where you want to end up. But the other issue with that too is a lot of PhD programs don't like admitting their own students. So if you completed a bachelor's degree at a specific institution that offers Egyptology, or classics, or Near Eastern studies, one of those very specialized fields, the chances of you staying there for a PhD are very, very slim. So now you've crossed off your list one of the handful of schools that have what you want. So then you have to be thinking very long-term. Okay, if I go here for my undergrad, I, I can't repeat it for my master's. So where do I want to end up for my master's and my PhD? Because it's not going to be where I start. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. And so they'll go to their dream school or they'll go to the school where they think this is, this is where I want to end up and you will not end up there. So you've got to, you've got to plan it out very far in advance. And I think that's a lot to ask of an 18 year old, you know, starting their college experience. Yeah. Well, that, in addition to, I mean, all the other just pitfalls that you encounter. And then that's not even to say anything about the the, the languages as well. I mm -hmm. mean, obviously for later specialization, you have more time to work on these things, but I'm just like, right. I mean, then that's asking an 18 year old to commit to taking two ancient languages. And then on top of that being like, oh yeah, don't forget, you're going to need French and German or whatever the languages yes. are that you will mm -hmm. need. So I don't know about you, but me as an 18 year old with like four extra languages, not a recipe for any kind of success. Yeah. Personally. I, yeah. I don't think I could have handled it at 18. I think I really needed to grow into the field of study. And again, for me personally, I think having that broader foundation where I could dip my toes in, but not commit completely at that stage, even though I, I knew I wanted to end up there, but I knew I needed to grow into it. Which I think just ended up being a really smart choice all around. Mm -hmm honestly. And sometimes I think, you know, maybe I should have not done classics. And then if I'd really wanted to go into it later, I probably could have, but I, this is why I just love observing yeah. different paths that people take because it's like, well, you know, how do you feel you did the thing you didn't do quite the thing, but you ended up there. And so, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting case study to see, okay, well, where did these people come from and what did they choose and how did they stick with it? In terms of sticking with it, you've mentioned that you had a very supportive family, which is awesome because everyone, I would, I wish everyone could have such a supportive family yeah. and just be like, go do the thing that you want to do that makes you happy. And wh whatever screw the finances, is, just be happy. So you had this idea, this general idea of where you wanted to end up, but you also had the foresight to know, I, I need some time. So I'm not going to just do that right away. Did you personally ever sort of get that sort of creeping doubt where you're like, you know, this is, this is kind of, this is hard. This is a really long game. Maybe I don't want to have to then start kind of a little behind and then, you know, catch up to people who might've yeah. been doing this. And did you ever think, you know, well, maybe do something else, but you know, have Egypt be a hobby or were you like so single-mindedly focused that you just got like tunnel vision and barreled through? You know, I really did have that tunnel vision. Looking back on it, I'll sometimes tell people it was the best 
uneducated decision I ever made. And that's not to say I didn't look into it and study. I did, right? I, I focused in on that and I knew everything that I could about that, but that was my bubble. And if something hadn't worked out, I think I could have come up with backup plans, but I didn't really have those in my mind as, as considerations, you know? So I always say it was the best uneducated choice I ever made. It really was a one-track mind at the time. No, you know, I, sometimes I envy that because if I could have been so single-mindedly focused, I could have probably powered through anything, but you know, that in in it of itself is a discussion, I I suppose on Uh like, is it good to be so almost like naively tunnel vision, like single track minded, or it's like, does that not actually behoove you in case for whatever reason, Uh it doesn't work out then, then. Yeah, no. And that's how I was like, it was a very naive, well, this is what I'm doing. Like, what do you mean it might not work out? This is, this is what I'm doing. And I'm just, I'm very thankful that it has worked out for me thus far. But, you know, again, looking back, it was kind of an uneducated thing, you know, for me. Oh, those are the best. Those are, those are fun yeah. though, to look back and be like, wow, I'm so glad it did work out. Cause I really would have been uh, kind of screwed if it didn't, but <laughs> exactly. But okay, so then once you graduated and then once you got your MA, how did you go about the process of finding sort of your home, quote unquote, for your PhD? Because I know usually they say, okay, well, you should have a general question idea in mind of what you want to do. Everyone I've ever sort of spoken to just still gets out of their master's and they're like, what I do a dissertation on it's basically your first book like and I'm supposed to like look at programs look at professors and sort of just sort of pick from a list of people who all seem to be doing things I'm interested in how do I do that so like how did you deal with that in between my master's and starting my PhD I took a year off and especially if you're doing a one-year master's I think you'll find that you probably will have to do that Because when you start your master's program in the fall, that's when those applications start for the PhD program. Well, you just showed up there. So none of the faculty at that institution know you yet. You haven't proven anything yet. You haven't done anything yet beyond your bachelor years. So now you'll find yourself in a position, you can't ask them for letters of recommendation yet. So you're going to have to do that full year and then take a gap year. That's what I would recommend doing. And, And that's what I did. And during that gap year, I really just reached out to a lot of Egyptologists whose work I was interested in. And I framed my interests very broadly because I wanted to see how they would react to it and what type of suggestions they would have. At its broadest, my research focuses on identity. I want to know how people self-define who they are how they navigate society, their peers, their culture, and others, quote unquote, outside who they consider to be part of their peer group, how they maintain that identity, how that identity may shift over time, how it may change or differentiate depending on one's gender or age or position in society, how that identity is often challenged during times of crisis and decentralization, where if you identify yourself as a courtier of the king and suddenly that king is deposed, now what? How do you renegotiate in that moment so that you can maintain your status and the status of your family, right? So like those were the types of research questions that I had, and that's kind of what I threw out there. That's the net that I cast got a huge variety of responses, but the one that I really picked up on was 
I emailed a professor at the University of Liverpool. I was interested in her work. She works on a lot of Old Kingdom material. Her name's Violaine Chauvet. And she wrote back to me saying, you sound a lot like Kara Cooney. And she's like, I went to grad school with Kara Cooney. And I really think you need to get in touch with her because this sounds like it would be a good match between you and her. So I did. So then I wrote to Kara at UCLA and explained where I was in this process of, you know, applying to PhD programs now during this gap year. And she thought like, yes, this would be a good fit. And we started talking about, okay, great. You have these good umbrella topics, these, these large questions, how do you actually apply that into real research? And she said, well, I'm looking at coffin reuse of 21st dynasty priests. And she said, you know, these priests, they have a lot of funerary papyri, book of the dead, book of the hidden chamber, books of the earth material. She said that I'm not, I'm not actually studying. The last time they were studied was in the eighties. But it would be a good complement to what I'm doing with the coffins. It's the same group of people. And I immediately said, no, 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 no. I, I don't do papyri. I don't do, I'm not a language person. I've never felt comfortable with languages. No, 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 no. We'll come up with something else. And she kept bringing it up during my first year as a grad student. She's like, have you looked at them? Like, just, just take a look, just see what you think. And I just fell right into it. Then those research topics became looking at this corpus of its text and material culture. So like, that's the really interesting thing. My goal was not to translate the Book of the Dead, right? That has been done. I do not need to, to do another text edition of that. But I could look at this as objects of identity, identity negotiation. What are they putting in these texts? What, what family are they listing? What titles do they have? How are they showcasing their religious knowledge? These are the priests that have access to these books of material. Are they manipulating it in interesting ways? And what does that say about their connection to the temple? And what I've found was that they're truly emphasizing this religious and temple connection over a connection to any type of king in the 21st dynasty, because Egypt does break down into this truncated, you know, northern Tanite dynasty, you know, and, and the priesthood takes control of the south. And so then that became this really interesting point of tension where I could talk about that type of identity and the absence of royal pressure to be any type of certain way and the lack of royal control in the temple system, right? So like, that's how I delve pretty deep into that. But I started very broad with, I want to know how people define themselves and how others react to that definition of self-identity. To me, that sounds super chill. And I'm like, yeah. man, I want to know the answers to those now. I suppose I could, you know, read your dissertation and find <laughs> out. But which I mean, hey, for anyone who's listening, who really wants to know the answers, I highly recommend reading about it. That may be like advice you would give to anyone who's thinking about doing a PhD, just like start not by just looking at a list of just names and being like, I mean, you know, pick one, but like actually reaching right. out when you're not looking to sort of mm -hmm. do anything and just be like, hi, this is what, like introducing yourself. Cause yes. I think a lot of people get kind of scared of the idea of, wait, I, I have to reach out to, to people I don't know who don't know me and, and then talk about what, like, like the, the idea itself seems very scary. Right. It is, but it shouldn't be. And it's always a two-way street. These faculty, they're looking for students and they want a good fit 
between themselves and their students just as much as this, the potential students want to find that perfect mentor for them. I feel like people always get very insecure when they feel desperate and wanting to get into a graduate school is probably, you know, and, and thinking, okay, my entire career kind of is on the line with this one set of applications. That's a very vulnerable place, right? And so then you get that insecurity of, oh, can I reach out to them? Should I, shouldn't I, you know, I don't want to come across, you know, somehow wrong or demanding or too desperate, you know, really there should be absolutely no hesitation in reaching out. And the way the faculty reply, and if they reply, right, that says a lot because you want to be able to have a good working relationship. At the PhD level, you're applying not just, you're certainly not applying to the school as a whole. You're looking first to the department or in cases of like interdepartmental programs, maybe you're looking at a couple departments, right, where you're going to be doing your coursework and, and you know, having a few mentors that span different departments. So you're looking at that level, but then you're also looking at that one person, right, that's going to be your advisor. And you need to make sure that that's going to be a solid relationship and you can't force it to work. So if you reach out via email, you know, and then maybe follow up with phone calls and things like that. If, if you can tell at that stage, this isn't going to work, you know, for, for whatever reason, and it can be a number of reasons, and we can talk about those reasons potentially, that's your answer right there. And you don't want to, you don't want to force a square peg into a round hole, right? You, you need to make sure that that starts off on solid, solid footing. Yeah. And you bring up a lot of really good points. And I do actually want to get into it because I've been just as, as a product of being in grad school myself and having a lot of mm -hmm. these questions sort of, uh, you know, either brought up to me or maybe just thinking about them uh, on my own. The PhD process is kind of like shrouded and veiled and people mm -hmm. give these big, broad definitions of, well, it could be like this or mine was like this. But we get as often very biased opinions based on someone's personal experience and no one tells you kind of how to do it and why or why not things work. Right. I just had a great conversation the other day with someone who basically attained ABD status, all but dissertation for those who don't know what that is. And she just kind of said, you know, it's, it's not right. I think I'm going to peace out with the masters and uh -huh. do my own thing. And she couldn't be happier. I mean, she's like, maybe, right. maybe one day, but it doesn't feel the need. So with trying to find an ideal mentor, you know, what if you are uh -huh. someone who's like, I don't know what I want to do, so I can't communicate that. And I don't know, you know, this person seems nice, but could maybe be a wrong fit. I mean, so getting a little into the nitty gritty of the actual process for figuring out what the hell you're actually going to do. Like why might something not really work out? So I would say in column A, we have the easy practical stuff. Is your potential mentor in a position to take on a student? Sometimes they might say, well, you know, I'm going to be on sabbatical all next year. So this is not the time for me to be taking any new student because I'm not going to be available for you. Or they might say, I'm retiring in three years. And I don't want to take on any new students right now because I'm not going to be able to see it through for you. So those are the practical reasons that you can immediately check off those boxes. Is that faculty member going to be available to you during the entire time or the majority, right? I mean, it's, they can take a sabbatical, you know, once you're kind of established, that's fine. But you want to make sure, right, that they're actually going to be available to do their job as it pertains to your education. So once you've gone through column A, you know, I would say column B is really about thinking 
okay, who am I or who will I be as a graduate student? And so I would encourage everyone to kind of ask themselves the questions of how do I envision a mentor relationship going? Am I the type of person that likes a lot of structure and wants to have weekly meetings set up with my advisor or every other week? Or, you know, what, what feels comfortable to you? And ask the potential advisor that question. What is your advising style? How often do you like students to check in? How often do you want to see me in office hours? How much freedom will you give me in choosing a topic? There are some people that would feel more comfortable having topics given to them, essentially. There are some people that want free reign to kind of do whatever it is and go down different rabbit holes and have an advisor that is comfortable with giving them that type of freedom. I think I fell into the second camp and I knew that. The idea of being held on a short leash and having to check in every week, I knew I didn't want. I wanted someone who had the confidence in me to feel like they didn't have to monitor every baby step that I took. And I had those very frank discussions with Kara was saying, this is what I'm looking for. Is this what you want in a student? And her response was yes. She's like, absolutely. I want somebody that can do their own thing and be independent. And she's like, I'm always going to be here for you whenever you have a question. But this notion of having the standing meeting on our calendar was something that we both were not uh, too keen on. And so we were on the same page with that, right? So, so I think that's part of it. And then of course, having complementary research interests. And the key word here is complementary. So that's, I would say, your column C to start looking at. You want them to be complementary and not identical because no faculty member wants to create a carbon copy of themselves. It's not interesting for the faculty member because they, at the end of the day, they want to be learning from you and what you're doing just as much as you want to learn from them. And it's also, it's not good for you. No one wants to hire a carbon copy of what already exists. So when you go out into the job market, you want to say, here's my academic pedigree, right? Here's the school I went to. Here's the department I was in. Here's my advisor. But look at what I am bringing to the table. Me, just me, not the department, not my advisor. This is what I can contribute. You want those research interests to be complementary, but not identical. I'm really happy that you brought the topic around to advisors, professors don't want carbon copies of themselves because uh -huh. it may just be the nature of people see people that really inspire them, really influence them. Since your advisor was Kara, which is uh -huh. kind of very fortuitous for me, I've tended to notice a lot of people who really love and admire Egyptology and Egypt. Uh -huh. They go, oh, well, that seems so fun. Oh, I really love her. You know, I don't think I'd do this, but if I did, I would go because I'd want to be her student. And so you see okay. students sort of almost cherry pick the the more notable ones who just seem like really great people and go, oh, I, th right. I think I could do that. Why is that? Could that result in something really great? Or for the most part, is that approach just like terrible where you shouldn't just find like one person that you're like, oh, I love everything they do. And I want to go study and be their student. I don't know if I've heard of a case of just like idolizing someone to the point where you want to be their student and then it works out really great. But like, feel free to contradict me if you have heard of stories working out. I don't know exactly about that. It was funny for me because, and I almost feel embarrassed saying it now, but I didn't know who Kara was <laughs> um, when I first started talking to her. And like I said, it was Violaine at the University of Liverpool who 
introduced us, you know, via email. So I kind of went into it blind. I didn't know she had this show on, I think at the time it was on the Discovery Channel, right? Like I didn't know that she had been on these like talk shows and all, all, all this stuff. For me, it was just about the research interests being able to collaborate and work with her. And I'll say like lowercase personality not upper capital personality as in you know this is this is some idol idol figure you know that i want to emulate i i didn't know any of that about her but i knew the personalities between the two of us would would work out well and then all of that other stuff kind of filtered in later where i was like oh wait she's a pretty popular figure here you know and i started as her student in 2012 and I remember specifically sitting with her and, and we did a, a, a research trip in Europe. We went to several museum collections in Europe the summer after my first year as a grad student. And I remember sitting with her in cafes and she would be looking on her phone or on her computer. I just got 50 likes. You're not going to believe I hit 50 likes. When she hit a hundred likes on a post, we would be celebrating. Like, oh my God triple digits triple di you know like or 25 people commented on that post can you believe 25 comments so that's where she was then and I remember so I kind of went on that journey with her a little bit of seeing her social media presence expand and her media presence expand as well and and so that's been quite the journey for her I know and it was kind of nice getting to witness some of that but I remember the days where it was 50 people like this can you believe it you know and it, it was great wow and you know I I want to say I like it sounds like you've had such a unique path not only in your own career but also through your academic mm -hmm. advisor because I mean there's not a lot mm -hmm. of people out there I can point to and tangibly talk to and be like did you feel that your advisors kind of the, their position their their growing popularity their blah 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 you know did did it have any effects really on your trajectory as the student because I don't know if I would find it easy if my advisor just like blew up, became famous. And then suddenly uh -huh. everyone wanted to talk to them. Everyone wanted to see them. Everyone wanted to come study with them. Obviously there's the very general, you know, no, you wouldn't let your own personal stuff get in the way of your professional working relationships. But right. just like as an individual though, like did this kind of affect you or not really? Yeah, you know, it didn't really affect me at all. And I know, and I'm, I think Kara probably mentioned this to you um, at some point, whether it was in her podcast episode, which we should plug that, right? That you yeah, can hell yeah. her podcast episode. But she has always said that she has almost a split personality when it comes to her career. At UCLA, she is the chair of the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures and a professor of Egyptian art and architecture. And she is Kathleen Cooney. And then her public persona is Kara Cooney, right? She goes by Kara. And, and she really keeps those two sides separate. She is still to this day very much, first and foremost, the responsible academic that has, you know, a, a department to run, students to teach, graduate students to advise. That is always foremost on her mind. And, and she really is able to keep it separate in a way where it doesn't affect, the celebrity aspect doesn't affect any of the university practices that are in place. And I really appreciate that. It, with any other person, I feel like they wouldn't be able to find that balance. And I, it's all credit to her that she was able to find that type of balance to where it didn't affect her students 
negatively and and if at all it kind of affected us in a positive way because we got to see a whole other trajectory for potential careers in being able to consult on on movies and television to be able to go into more popular writing and editing having it seen done well and successfully kind of opened up another door for all of us where it kind of got us thinking, well, you know, we could maybe do some of that too. And it's not the strict academic career path, but that's okay. Yeah. Now I have to ask though, the the last couple of books I love and think are excellent, but mm-hmm. I know that they were a little controversial. You know, like when you see stuff like that with how maybe the, the popular trade books were received, you know, that is an avenue that opens up, but also mm-hmm. what lessons do you take? Do you like, maybe you wouldn't want to do the same thing because of the way it was received in certain areas or is it more just like, no, it doesn't matter like how it's received or how people yeah. perceive it. It's just like, if you want to do it, like you've seen now, then someone can like survive the criticism and survive the whatever. And you're like, yeah, I could do with that. Right. I agree completely. And I think criticism, that's fine. You know, I don't, I'm not bothered by that at all. And I I don't think anyone should be, you know, one of the biggest issues with the humanities in general, but especially ancient studies is being relevant to the modern world. What can we learn about ourselves through a study of the past. We don't want to keep the past in some bubble. We don't want to make it somehow, we don't want to fetishize it. We don't want to make it something exotic. We certainly don't want to view it as, oh my gosh, savage or primitive, like any of those terms. These civilizations are just as complex socially, oftentimes economically, and obviously politically, ideologically, as we are today. So what lessons can we learn and then apply to ourselves in terms of our own identity in my case right with what i like to study kara is doing that you know and other scholars in the field the brave scholars in the field are doing that and i think more of that needs to be done and anytime you can make ancient studies relevant not just to you know the other five people in the room of that conference but to a general public population more power to you for sure i mean i Definitely agree about opening things up. I mean, the last thing we want to do is be the uh, selfish gatekeepers for, oh, but, you know, the old ancient civilization. Oh, it's the secret, you know, thing, blah, blah, blah. With that, though, and in terms of like opening up and and wanting to do other things and have them be applicable, you know, in in your own career so far, can you tell people Uh sort of what you're doing now that you do Uh have your degree and a little bit more about, you know, what you've been able to do since? I got my PhD in 2018, and I stayed at UCLA. So I'm still affiliated with the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures, but I work as the assistant director for the Portavud Center for the Study of the Iranian World. And this is a newer academic center on campus, and it focuses on ancient Persia. For me at first, it seemed a little tangential, but delving into it, it really is a center tenant of my research right now. I was already looking at Egypt's third intermediate period, which is a a later part of the civilization post New Kingdom. So post King Tut, post Ramses the Great, you know, all of those people that kind of come to mind. A lot of scholars view this as a post-interesting period. A lot will even cut off pharaonic Egyptian civilization after the New Kingdom and say, oh, and then it went into decline, right? That's the buzzword that they often use. Well, I find the third intermediate period to be extremely interesting and then moving even further into the late period. That's a time in Egyptian history where it's conquered by one 
one group after another. So, you, I mean, we already had groups of Libyans ruling Egypt during the third intermediate period. Then the Assyrians come in, then the Persians come in, you know, and then of course you get the Greeks and the Romans, right? You know, Alexander the Great is going to make his, his famous appearance. And so all of that, I find very interesting in terms of identity negotiation, because suddenly we're dealing with empire. Suddenly we're dealing with Egypt being just one part of a greater whole. So how do the ruling kings of these larger empires, the Persian empire per se, you know, the Achaemenid empire, how do they negotiate Egyptian identity? What types of trappings of pharaonic kingship do they take on? Do they impose anything into native Egypt that is quote unquote foreign from the Egyptian perspective coming from abroad? How does the administration work with a, an additional layer of this imperial administration? How are religions negotiated? Is there conflict? Is there collaboration? Is there religious growth and expansion in terms of thought? You know, what are, what are all these things going on? So that's kind of what I focus on within the Port of Ud Center is Achaemenid Egypt, the 27th dynasty, and how those elements of identity negotiation are changed, maintained, adapted, you know, during this time where Egypt is still Egypt, but Egypt is also Persian, because now they're part of this larger Persian empire. So that's kind of what I focus on now. And then in terms of the practicalities, right, what do I actually do on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, you know, I administer the center in terms of the budgetary parts and, you know, all of that good stuff. I also help with the programming effort. So we have a number of lecture series, workshops, conferences that we do, both for very specialized audiences, but all of our events are also open to the public. And so we try to take that into consideration when we're thinking of content. Along with that is the UCLA Iranian Studies Program, which tends to focus more on modern Iran, simply because the Port of Ud Center kind of covers that more ancient side. And so I'll do programming for that as well. And we really try to consider our community members with things like the bilingual lecture series where we'll have a scholar come in, give the same lecture twice, first in Persian and then second in English. And we have a lot of students in the Persian language program that like to test their knowledge. How much can I get from the Persian lecture? And then, you know, follow up with the, with the English lecture. It's great for a lot of community members where English is a second language and they feel more comfortable listening to these speakers in their own native tongue. It's great for heritage speakers that want to hear Persian spoken just outside the home. So we do a lot of that. And then, of course, the, the research part of the center is also very big. We have a number of digital projects that we're working on right now. Egypt is certainly one of those projects that we're delving into. And so it keeps me pretty busy with all of those, those different se um, sectors, you know, of the center. For sure. And are you a researcher at heart where you just want to go like learn new things and publish and like then, you know, make things accessible to the public or does the thought of like teaching pop into your mind mm -hmm. or is that just like a completely different sort of thing that you're like, mm, maybe later, not now. I definitely want to teach and I do get to teach occasionally. My position is one where uh, I certainly can teach. But because there's so much else to do in terms of the research, that kind of gets put on a back burner often. Um, but every so often, I'll get to teach a class, and not just for UCLA. So uh, last spring, I got to teach a class on Egyptian and Near Eastern art at uh, Cal Poly Pomona. And so that's a great experience. I'll teach a class for them every so often. You know, and so I still get to be in the classroom a little bit. Probably in the future, I'll be able to teach a little bit more. But right now, 
I, I, because I think the center is still so new, it's still so young, that we really need to be able to build up all of the programming and research avenues first and kind of get that up and running. And then maybe I'll be free to teach a little bit more. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and then is this like a long-term thing that you'd really love to be a part of for the foreseeable future? Or have you ever had any thoughts of finding something outside of California, maybe traveling internationally, doing something, you know, in, in Egypt, maybe? Yeah. And in terms of jobs and positions, I love the job that I have now. And I love UCLA. I love being in Los Angeles. That would be devastating for me to have to leave. But for the right job came along, you know, I guess I I would do it, right? So looking into tenure track positions, you know, is certainly an option that I'm keeping open. But of course, we all know how competitive the academic job market is. And I'm very, very privileged to have a full position at UCLA. In terms of where I might end up in terms of research, yeah, I definitely want to have a project going in Egypt. That's something that we're looking at right now. COVID kind of derailed our plans that we started in 2019 about that plan. But really one thing, one goal that I have, and I know one goal that the center has is to re-examine a lot of accommodated monuments in Egypt. Some of those are, you know, stila and things. Those are already in museum collections housed offsite. A lot are still in situ. The Hibis Temple is a famous Achaemenid monument that we would really like to study in terms of understanding, again, that identity negotiation through religious display. The last full publication of Achaemenid monuments in Egypt was done in the 1930s. And so it's high time, I think, that we reevaluate that material. And as so often is the case in earlier publications, the texts are published in isolation, right, in one volume. Photographs of the monuments themselves are published in a different volume with descriptions, but the two never really seem to intertwine. And I think that that's really important, that these are monumental displays. Yes, there is text written on them. Yes, sometimes the text is the most important element, but it's not just what the text says, it's how it was viewed, how it was displayed who got to see it, in what context, and why, right? So those are the types of questions, and it's only through integrating text and material culture that you're able to, to start to answer those questions. And so that's really what I want to do. Um, so we are working on that, trying to get that back up and running after COVID. So we'll see in terms of permissions and who we could potentially take on the project and all of that good stuff is, is already in the works. I look forward to seeing how that, you know, gets going. I'd be really excited to just see kind of what what you can, what you you can cook up post-COVID. I mean, if there's such a thing as post-COVID. So that's, of course, the other question. For the foreseeable future, I guess, you're super happy in LA, which is awesome. And I, you know, that's how I kind of was like about Chicago for the longest time. I was like, oh, it's Mm -hmm. my hometown. I'm happy. I don't want to leave. I I would be devastated. And then what did I do? I up and moved to Europe. So that only lasts as long as I suppose you let yourself be like, I only want this to happen. But so since you're in LA and arguably the heart of Hollywood and other media, Uh, I have to ask, we've been talking a lot about, you know, representation, your research is an identity, which I think is fascinating. And so okay. we have a lot of popular media that has Egypt as it's either narrative okay. center or it's included somehow. So I don't, I don't know if you've kept track like super well, but from what I've seen every like Egypt, anything we have 
it portrayed quite interestingly. It's always in ruins. It, it always yeah. looks kind of terrible. If through your work and what you've seen and what you've been able to learn, if you wanted to see something that was like actually respectfully well done, that wasn't just Egypt is in ruins and a shambly shambly place, you know, like what what is something you'd like to see? And like, let's just say in this alternate universe, they ask you to consult on make your own movie or mini series, you know, what is something you'd like to see or what was, what would be something you would do? I think any type of narrative that focuses on an Egyptian reclaiming of their country would be great. So, you know, it's like, we've seen the series about, you know, like Howard Carter discovering King Tut that's been dramatized, all of that kind of stuff. What about something from an Egyptian perspective of all of the tensions in in service of antiquities and in the museums where you have foreign directors of the Egyptian museum, all of the Egyptian scholars, all of the Egyptian curators and people that worked in the antiquity service, they're not highlighted in the narrative at all. It's, you know, you always see, you know, the French and the British kind of taking control. I would love to see something where those Egyptian scholars are able to be highlighted and and showcase the struggle that they had in being silenced and being sidelined in not being taken seriously and and show this the long struggle that they had in reclaiming their own spaces their own museum spaces their own excavation sites and bringing that under egyptian governmental control right like i think that that's a narrative that's often understudied no one in the public really seems to question why is the director of the uh museum in Cairo French why you know it's like when you see in movies and things about you know even in like the 1999 mummy right they're all British right all of the people that run that museum are British is no one questioning why why are why are Egyptians not running their own museum right so maybe something along the lines of that narrative that showcases that political and ideological struggle between who gets to control Egyptian monuments Egyptian archaeological sites and excavations and the actual museum spaces themselves who gets to administer that yeah i love that i mean i mean that just really sort of hits home with the whole how do we decolonialize the uh right the entire subject and i think the first part is acknowledging that that narrative exists right yeah i know even even with the the newer mummies where you would ostensibly hope that as you know understanding has gotten better quote unquote Mm -hmm. you still have basically british uh, you had tom cruise who wasn't even british you had tom cruise and i was like why is tom cruise in a another movie you know like why is the chick white in you know that's his like Uh lead actress like what so i would definitely i think enjoy seeing something around egyptians reclaiming their their own history really taking it back that would be really fascinating to see and so okay so that's the more modern one and then if i were to ask what would you like to see in terms of ancient egypt represented Ancient, okay. There, I mean, there's so much. And I'm trying to think, you know, what was it, the Gods of Egypt movie? That was camp to the extreme, right? I mean, mm. that was, that, that was, was quite the, interesting. The could, so could I just bad request, yeah, like, could I just re- request a redo of that? Like, I don't know. Um, but no, I think the ancient Egyptians wrote so many fascinating literary tales. The report of Wanamu, the shipwrecked sailor, they've already written the screenplays, the ancient Egyptians themselves. So why don't we do, you know, the shipwreck sailor, you know, taking that literary tale as it, ex- as it exists as our starting point for the screenplay. Like, I think that would be really interesting to, to feature, you know, some of the Egyptian literary stories as, 
you know, relatively as they are to a modern audience and see maybe how it can become applicable to, to the modern world. I think that would be really interesting. I would enjoy that. Well, then I want to ask, though, like for Greek and Roman sources, we take so much of what they have and then we do whatever with them. So it's like, (laughs) why is there this hesitation? Like, why don't we just look at the literary sources that exist? I wonder. Makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a little bit of a cultural barrier more so than with Greece and Rome. There's also, you know, it's like there seems to be still this sad notion that the foundation of modern society sits firmly with Greece and Rome, right? We look to them as the starting point and we don't look anywhere else into Egypt, the Near East, into Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, East Asia. We don't look to these other places, certainly the Americas, right? Like that's horribly sidelined, you know, in terms of foundational society. We still view Greece and Rome as that foundation and we don't look even further. You know, it was funny, like the other day I was looking at something having to do with like Harry Potter, like popped up on like one of my news feeds and like, you know how they'll try to come up with like additional canon content for like the Harry Potter world. It was like something about like, oh, you know, and like the first wizards were, you know, from ancient Greece, blah, blah, blah. And like, it talked about like the first wizards and I'm like well there's a whole history of magic in in ancient Egypt right and every civilization has you know notions of of magic so like where's any discussion of like Egyptian magical practices and and oracles and amulets and there's even evidence we call them magic wands right that we have from from Egypt those those curved ivory wands that we think were were somehow meant to protect women during pregnancy and childbirth, right? I mean, but like all of these things, like I'm like, it's hard to maybe delve into that for a non-expert. And I think that that's the problem that we need to make things more open and accessible. I could see where it's a lot harder than Greece and Rome, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. both you and I talked about how Egypt was the big sexy thing that we wanted to learn. We were hungry to learn about. And I can't imagine that there aren't hundreds if not thousands of kids every year who learn about this stuff in grade school who just go this is so amazing I want to learn everything I can and I'm like how easy would it be to turn this love when you like turn someone on and then you teach them about mummies and the pyramids and ancient magic and myths as a fifth grader to just be like oh so you know you want to like study that you want to you want to like learn about the stuff because it's like not all of them are going to be Egyptologists. So I'm sure that there's going to be some filmmakers or actors in there who could be like, oh, well, you know, I made Egyptology my like side passion because I fell in love with it in fifth grade. I have the skills now as a whatever they became. And they're like, oh, I could do it. So I'm just like, I don't know why it doesn't translate because I I feel like I meet so many people who are just like, oh, I loved Egypt as a kid. There was nothing more beautiful and wonderful than studying this. And I'm like, so then do something like you have the power to like. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like we need to make it something that can be more easily referenced, you know, because we do have a lot of people, I think, that are very interested. And there seems to still be this chasm between the interest and what we are making available to them. I think the answer is, is to make this more accessible to the public so that they feel not only that there's something out there for them, that they're comfortable with referencing it. They're comfortable mm-hmm. with going there. I mean, like, but even when you think about it, like in high school, you know, we all read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, in high school, but like, who's read the report of one almond, which in some cases, like inspired parts of texts like the Iliad, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. You know, it's like maybe, and, and like, or like Gilgamesh, like very few high school students read Gilgamesh and that's equivalent, you know, like in terms of the, the modern English translations are, are equivalent in terms of technical difficulty that you would want to require in any assigned reading of like a high school student, right? It's, it's a similar thing. I think there's even at that level, already this stage of still favoring the quote-unquote capital W West over other civilizations. Without a doubt. I mean, I did, I was lucky enough to read Gilgamesh as a uh-huh. seventh grader, whatever, whatever age okay. that was. Yeah. yeah, no, it was, and it was, pre- and I remember now it was presented to me almost like this was after we did the Iliad and the Odyssey. This was, uh-huh. you know, once because I use those to sort of form the concept in young kids of, well, this is what an, an epic should be. Because right. then I like after I get that background, they hand me Gilgamesh and they just go, so this is like, yeah, an epic too, but it's like different. And it's, you know, make of it what you will, but we're not going to go in depth on it. Just enjoy. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Like, what if I want to do more research on this? Like delve in deeper. (laughs) I remember, I think I asked my teacher about like Ishtar and I was like, oh, so she's like central to like Assyrian myth. Right. Like, so what's the deal? And he's just like, I don't know. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay. Well, thanks for the help. And then had to Google that myself, but definitely, I think we both spend a lot of time on thinking how to make things more accessible, but it's like, what can we tangibly do though? I mean, you know, I thought maybe for a while, like video games, like the Assassin's Creed games, cause they did such a good mm-hmm. job, but I'm also just like, well, maybe for Egypt, because they were able to like, like enough people have this cultural memory of like what a Sphinx is that you can just kind of, it's self-explanatory. You put it in a game, blah, blah, blah. so more people may become more familiarized with it, but like, there's always this baseline of, I, I know what the concept, I know what it is. And I was just thinking like for other ancient civilizations, but also Egypt, there's like a lot yeah. of unexplored creatures that you'd kind of be like, what the hell is this? And and like, it just like, right. you could put it in a game and you'd be like, oh, it's fun. But like, that's like a heavy lift where you would have to explain why it's important. Why is this here? Why is this the yeah. beast you're killing? Like, like, there's just no easy way to do it. I don't know. Do you, do you know of any other good way of educating people about and, and trying to like build in the layers of like why they should care about this thing or like? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's so, it's really hard. And for example, when I taught that class at Cal Poly Pomona that was on Egyptian and Near Eastern art, I warned my students, yeah, I'm going to give a little bit of preferential treatment to the Egyptian art because that's my passion, right? But we're going to try to do this 50-50 split. And what I quickly find is the Egyptian art is more familiar and identifiable. No matter the time period, if it's Old Kingdom, New Kingdom, it doesn't matter if it's wall relief or statuary, whatever it is, students can look at that and immediately say, I know that's Egyptian. And then everything else then becomes not Egyptian. So the rest of the Near East, if it's Hittite, if it's Assyrian, if it's Persian, if it's Elamite, the first thing in their mind, they file it into the not Egyptian category. But then further than that, is a challenge, right? Because all of the, in terms of the art, right? Oftentimes all of the other Near Eastern societies just become everything else, right? You have Egypt and everything else in terms of these classes. So then the challenge for me becomes, okay, how do I give them the tools to break that down further so that it's not just not Egyptian, but it is actually something to them, right? So that then becomes the big challenge. And it's true because Egyptian culture, while, you know, as a specialist, 
I see and appreciate all of the differences and variations geographically, temporally, you know, all of that. It is more monolithic in terms of language, in terms of religion, certainly in terms of the art and material culture. To an outsider, it is more monolithic and identifiable. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's good that those elements of Egyptian culture can be identified so easily by the non-specialist, but it also, it makes it feel like there's this timelessness or this static nature to Egyptian society where it lacks change. It lacks innovation, right? And that's not the case either. I don't think, I don't think I actually answered your question. I don't think I have a good answer for your question. Not everything needs an answer, I guess, really. Like these are really hard ones. Yeah. I think it's just about making this material feel more familiar in a number of ways, you know, through museum curations, online databases that that people can can look at I think it's just about making it a little bit more familiar to them yeah I mean I don't know what else we could do because I remember growing up in Chicago I had the Oriental Institute or OI as we call it now there so anytime after high school I could jump on a bus and go and see the works in the museum Mm -hmm. and so I grew up knowing what a Lamasu right looked like now if you don't know what that looks like just Google it. I promise you'll get these yeah. fantastic photos of a Lamasu. And count the feet. Yes. Make sure, yes. look at multiple angles and count the feet and you'll be surprised. It's like a little Easter egg for you. Oh yeah. It's, it's so cool. Well, I mean, if we're talking about Lamasus and I have to plug uh, my dear friend, Megan Lewis's episode, she's a, a seriologist who runs the, mm-hmm. the YouTube channel, Digital Hammurabi. So she'll, she'll yeah. get into Lamasus and talk about Assyrian things and Assyriology. So I knew what it was. And some of my friends who came with me knew what it was. But yeah, no, it's it's interesting how I'll go out for a lot of people. I'll I'll just kind of go out and I'll be like, yeah, do you know what a Lamasu is? No, I don't know what that is. I've never heard of it. Is that like even a thing? Yes, it is a thing. I promise you. But like, yeah, I encountered just this like, oh, okay. I'm I'm like outside my bubble. You don't know what this is. All right. Yeah. We have work to do to educate. But like, then I'll point out and I'll be like, do you know what Abu symbol is? And they'll be like, oh yeah, that's like that Egyptian thing, right? And I'm like, yes, it is in Egypt. It's a it's a hell of a, a cliff that we're we're facing. Um, yeah. If someone has solutions, please suggest them to us. Like we're all ears. Like yeah. let's make this stuff easier, not harder. I have kind of three final questions to wrap up this interview portion for you. The first one is when you were an undergrad, I guess you can include your grad years if you would like, but, but more as an undergrad, did you attend office hours? Yes, I did. I was regularly in, I would say most of my professors offices in the history department and sociology department sometimes by myself, sometimes there'd be a group of three or four of us, you know, after a class or I had a core group of friends that we would always study together and make outlines for the midterms and finals together. And so we would always present what we had outlined or what we had drafted kind of in a group setting. And those were some of the most fun times, right? Because we got to really dive deep into some really interesting topics and and the faculty were always so willing and accommodating, you know, to, to talk with us about any questions that we had. Great. And I was going to say, actually, what, you know, if you had any or one, you know, what was your favorite memory of office hours? I mean, did you have a favorite conversation or experience just generally? I mean, like there are some offices, you know, that I can still picture, you know, and, and see the faculty sitting there and everything. I'll say one 
one really fun thing, and it's not necessarily office hours, but it kind of was, is once a month, all of the history faculty would get together in the student commons area with a Trivial Pursuit board game and just play Trivial Pursuit and invite all of the students that were around to just play Trivial Pursuit with them. And I always looked forward to that. Like I would always put it on my calendar is like, okay, this is Trivial Pursuit night with the history faculty. And those are some of the best experiences. You know, it's like we would, we would talk about some of the questions and, you know, what, well, what do you know about this topic? What do you know about that? Just generally, you know, talk about the classes, talk about their own research interests. And that was some of the best, playing Trivial Pursuit with all of the history faculty. Oh, and then yeah. the uh, last one I got for you really is as kind of now a, a teacher yourself, an educator yourself, mm -hmm. because you do occasionally teach. What is the best argument that you have for why students should come to your office hours? And like, you know, what would they get out of it? And like, why is it just generally a good idea to go to office hours? Oh, I mean, there's so many reasons why. I mean, beyond just being able to clarify classroom material, and that's a two-way street, I'll point that out. It helps the student, but it also helps me because if one student has questions, probably more than one have those questions. And that informs me as an educator, well, maybe what didn't I get across that well? What could I improve in my teaching? Or what, what do I need to dedicate more time to in the classroom, right? So that's great feedback for me that I can get in the moment rather than waiting for those evaluations that seem to always show up at your desk like two months after the end of the class. And you say, great, you know, like that that's useful. I guess next year I can apply that feedback, right? So it's, it's a form of providing me with feedback um, go, coming to office hours. Also, that's a time where you can go beyond the classroom material. And, you know, if you have questions like the ones that you asked today about getting into grad school, figuring out types of career trajectories, you know, it's, it's not just about sticking to the classroom material. It's about going beyond that and diving deeper. And that's what office hours can, can really um, provide to a student and you know all those little things that seem to fall in the cracks that it's not maybe something that you can go to a student affairs officer about or you can't really ask the registrar's office that question but maybe you can find out information about additional courses or additional opportunities even student groups that that you could join things like that faculty will often know about and it's good to kind of pick their brains every so often and see see what they can come up with for you couldn't have put it better myself. Some of my best and happiest times in undergrad were definitely spent in my professor's office. It didn't hurt that she had the famous chocolate drawer. So you could just go in and grab Ooh. handfuls of chocolate whenever you wanted to, even when oh, she was in her office. That's a great incentive right there. And she was so nice about it. She even said you could come get chocolate out of the office if you weren't even in the department. If you were like from a random other department, like if you wandered in from the bio department, she'd be like, hi, do you want a piece of chocolate? And they'd be like, oh, yes, I would. Now I want to come talk to you. So it's uh, she was very, very smart and I love her. Those are all wonderful reasons and I would endorse all of them. So um, if you're listening and are on the fence about going to your professor's office hours, you should really check them out because they are amazing experiences to be had. And I would hate for anyone to miss out. And if you didn't have the chance to go feel really bad, but like, yeah. if you go back to school, you can go to office hours, I suppose, or you can listen to the podcast and then live vicariously through the conversations and experience <laughs> what office hours are kind of like. So yes. the last thing I have every guest do at the end of the podcast is to read Shelley's Ozymandias poem. 
And then it doesn't need to be the longest, most erudite thing you've ever said. But just like after reading it, um, if you could just tell us a little bit, like, like, what do you take away from this poem? And why do so many people, you know, really still kind of look to this poem as the pedestal that that it has been placed on by a lot of people? Because Mm-hmm. I, I've heard things from it is the greatest sonnet ever written said about it to this is just prescient in every era that it's read. So yeah, I would love to, to get your thoughts on it. Okay. All right. Well, the pressure is on here. Is that- There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I think how you already indicated the applicability of this in every generation, every era, you know, that we define, you know, has that rise and fall and collapse. And it really, it really calls into question, what is your legacy? Is it going to be a lasting legacy? You know, even the greatest of the greats seems to fall into complete, not even ruin, but nothingness, absolutely complete nothingness. I think of the phrase we've all heard way too much in recent years, too great to fail, too big to fail, 
right? Like we've heard that time and time again. In addition to all of that common, something that I always found really interesting about this poem is that almost all of it is a quote said by that traveler. So Shelley introduces in, in the very first line that this is all a traveler and he says, quote, right? And that all of it is in this quote. I almost can't articulate how that makes me feel, but it's almost a little unsettling, right? Like why, or, or it brings up this um, like conflict in my mind. Why would Shelley write it that way? Why didn't he just start out by saying, I traveled to a foreign land and this is what I saw it always I almost can't describe it but it all it always kind of made me feel like there is something of of hearsay to it that like you wonder is this true or not what is the agenda of this traveler it you know and maybe this is me as a scholar constantly questioning the validity of sources and you're like calling out Herodotus time and time again being like dude you you totally had a bias with this you know or whatever it just leads me to think about those questions and try to untangle them but you know what was this traveler's agenda who is this traveler I want to know more tell me about this and can we really believe it for what it is or is there more to the story is both ancient and modern times you can imagine that Hittite envoy that came back from Egypt saying to the Hittite king oh no, the Egyptians, they've got nothing on us. Let me tell you, their palace was small and dinky and their food wasn't that great, like to try to build up the Hittite king, right? So you're, you're constantly questioning biases and the agenda that these people might have. And so that's something that I always feel when I read this poem is I want to know more about this traveler character and like, you know, what is he or she going to get out of this by reporting back in this certain way? So I don't know. That's the skeptic in me, I guess. That's something really, really interesting because I th I forgot who it was, but somebody on the podcast kind of pointed out and said, okay, but Ozymandias was like Ramesses II. And they were like, but in history, the fact that they're saying on the statue, you know, the, the sneer of cold command, they're like, but this man in real life wasn't like what is being described. They're like, he's always portrayed yeah. as very serene and calm. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like, well, suppose that, well, he's turned into a villain after by modern people because he was the pharaoh in the bible i guess for exodus so then they were like right. so you have to create this like mean persona because oh and the you know mm -hmm. the slaves and whatever but it's just really interesting to me how yeah it's like this traveler is saying i saw this statue where he's portrayed as mean and cruel but i'm like but if you look at egyptian art he wasn't tell me is it like <laughs> you know I, i'm just like as i talk to the egyptologist of course but i'm just like yeah, yeah. tell me what statue is this describing because there's there's not one that I can think of in my mind of him being all snarly and cruel no I mean like if if you gave me just those lines that describe his face and said which Egyptian pharaoh is it I would tell you Senwasrit the third right that would be my guess but as far as I know he has no colossal statues that this could in any realm be referencing right now there's a lot of statuary of him but nothing on a colossal scale so you know i mean yeah it's interesting you know it's like you you wonder what's manipulated and why is it supposed to be a cautionary tale of see because he this guy ruled with an iron fist because he was cold and cool and cold and calculating and all of that that's why his empire or you know whatever it is fell into complete decay right that you have you can't just rule well and completely but you have to do it with a certain benevolence that this 
Pharaoh apparently lacked, right? Is that the lesson we're supposed to be learning from this traveler? You know, those are all really great questions that I'd love to ask Shelley. Like, why did you write this poem this way? But, you know, it's interesting because from a more modern sort of political perspective that I've curated over career and, and, and things, mm-hmm. um, I, I read this also just as a, a statement by Shelley on the nature of political power. Like, it's so ephemeral, like yeah. a memento mori, right? Like a, hey, remember, you will die kind of thing. So, you know, I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's just like one big giant metaphor for yo like you can't do it on your own you're not the greatest ever because like you need help or something and so kind of like bouncing off of those themes and bouncing off home the last question I ask every guest is if you think about our contemporary society is there like a modern equivalent of our own Ozymandias like what is something we think is so great and amazing and then realistically in like you know a couple hundred years we kind of look back and just be like what the hell were we thinking like what like what what were we doing this was so stupid can I offer an answer that is partially my own personal hope or wish which might yeah of course we live in this age of information And I think the sad evil side to that is it can often become an age of disinformation. I think sticking with the trend of who is this traveler and why should we trust him, right? Reporting back to us, should we take this at face value? I'm hoping that that age of disinformation, that side of things might be our own modern Ozymandias who go by the wayside and we can all just become a little bit smarter and critical in terms of our thinking of where we're getting our information from. You know, we should really feel so lucky that we have all of the world's global information at our fingertips. And I think we all need to look a little harder into, okay, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to use it to better ourselves and our society and not spread disinformation, not corrupt the knowledge that we have, not use it for negative things, bad things in life. And so that's what I'm ho- I'm hoping for like a half fall from grace. I want the disinformation side of things to fall and the purity of the true information age to really come to light and to fruition. That's my hope. Well, I can't argue with that. I can't contradict that because I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes, I want to see this. I, I, I hope this will happen and I hope this will happen soon and not in like, you know, 100 years because that would be like 100 years of further disinformation and pain and just like all around suckiness. So I'm like, yes, oh this gosh. needs to happen like tomorrow. Let's let's start this trend tomorrow. Yes. But I think that is a great answer. I love the sort of like non-traditional ones. I'm going to say, let's leave it on that high note because you can't possibly top that answer. Just want to thank you again for joining me on the podcast. I mean, it's just been such a pleasure to to chat and talk and, you know, like learn a little more about what you're doing because I think I think it's so interesting. And so I hope everyone else does as well. Yes, thank you so much. It was so much fun. So I'm so glad to, to be a guest on this podcast. We hope to have you back soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.